Welcome to SC Featured Podcast. I'm Jen Latta. You know, stories come to our attention here at ESPN in a variety of ways. The story we're telling you today came to us in the most traditional and organic way possible. It's a story of friendship. The friendship between Denny Wolf, one of the longtime members of our features unit, and one of his college classmates, Sean Swarner. Sean has conquered mountains, both literally and figuratively. He has risked his life to do what no one else has ever done. Not for personal fame, but to serve as a beacon of hope for people all over the world. right now, which is pretty much an open area of water. And Alan just wants to go check it out. What do you think? If I toss a coin, I'd go that way. And we went north. That's Sean Swarner and his tour guide, Alan Chambers, just hours after arriving via helicopter, 100 miles from the North Pole. Facing freezing cold temperatures and a treacherous terrain, Sean Swarner embarked on the final leg of a 15-year quest to become the first cancer survivor to complete what's known as the Explorer's Grand Slam. The Grand Slam includes the highest peaks on all seven continents and the North and South Poles. Reaching the North Pole would complete Sean's quest. I produced a feature on Sean Swarner for SportsCenter back in 2007, and when I learned last year that he was going for the Slam, ESPN decided to revisit Sean's story. But to best understand Sean, we begin where he and I first met, at Westminster College in Pennsylvania in the early 1990s. You know, there was something, you know, we, we hung out in the same circles, you know, we, we had the same friends, we talked to each other regularly and stuff like that, but there were so many years that that there was, you know, I knew your story about being a cancer survivor. I had friends of mine that said, like, oh, yeah, Sean... He had survived cancer, and for me, there was a level of ignorance as to the depth of your story because I thought, like, well, I look at Sean, he's on the swim team, you know, he looks healthy, he's a pretty good-looking guy. You know, they're like, oh, then they must have early detection, they caught it early, things were going great. But little did I know how severe your, your story was. My parents didn't even think I was going to make it through college. So they, they talked to my roommate, Brendan, and they talked to uh, Coach Klamath, and said, you know, just keep an eye on him because we don't think he's going to make it through all four years. So it was that bad. But then going back to, I guess, when I was 13, I was an avid outdoors person. I loved playing basketball, uh, swimming, football, um, soccer, cross country, track. I pole vaulted. I did like everything under the sun. And um, I was in the eighth grade. And normally after lunch, I would go into the multi-purpose room and do the pegboard. And I don't know if you know what the pegboard is, but oh, it's yeah. a board with holes in it, and you have pegs, and you try to climb up the wall. And for whatever reason, the teacher at that time didn't want to go get the pegs that day. So <laughs> I was like, all right, well, screw this. We'll go do something else. And we ended up doing like a pickup basketball game. And I remember going up for a layup, coming down, and my knee literally snapping. Kind of like at Thanksgiving, you're pulling off the leg from the turkey. That's kind of what my knee sounded like, that that ripping and grinding it's sound. It's like a breaking of a pencil, too, sort of that kind like, of crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the ligaments and everything just went and just kind of tore apart. So I hobbled over to the stage, and I hobbled home later that day. Uh, fast forward a little bit because I went to see uh, the, the regular doctor, a knee specialist. They did a bunch of x-rays, nothing, nothing, nothing. Um, they stuck me in the hospital because a day after this knee injury, my entire body swelled up. 
every joint was so swollen I looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Sean was diagnosed with advanced stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma. He had cancer from head to toe. I kind of remember learning what the cancer was, finding out that Hodgkin's lymphoma or Hodgkin's disease meant cancer. And my, my entire body was riddled with tumors. And I, I kind of looked at myself in the mirror and thought to myself, you know what, you have two choices. I can either fight for my life or give up and die. And the second one wasn't a choice. It wasn't an option at all. What was it like the day that they, they told you, we're going to start treatment immediately? I remember being a 13-year-old and to test if, if I had the cancer in my marrow. They had to essentially drill through my, my pelvic bone in the back. I remember laying on, on the hospital bed and grabbing the nurse's arm or her hand, and she told me, you know, just squeeze if it hurts. And they numbed me up a little bit, and they didn't wait for the novocation, uh, the, uh, the numbing effect to actually make my skin and my back not hurt. So here they are, essentially. There's a lady who's using one of those, like, those old-fashioned drills, you know, where you push it down, and then they take the top of it and spin it around to get in. And she's sitting back there with this surgical blade, essentially, trying to drill past my, my hip bone into the, the marrow of the bone. And the first time she did that, she pulled it out and she aspirated part of the bone. She had to, then she had to do it two more times. So it, by aspirating the bone, that means that, it, that the sample was tainted because it had pieces of bone fragments. Exactly. In it. So it didn't take any marrow. They took out pieces of bone as Ugh. opposed to the marrow. So I remember sitting there, tears just flowing down my face and I'm squeezing the the other lady the other nurse's hand because I'm in so much pain and I'm squeezing her hand so much she took my hand off of hers and put it on the bed frame that was in so much pain I'm sitting there squeezing this more and more and more and it was the most excruciating pain I've ever been in my entire life later on I also found out that they could have treated me as a as a child because I was 13 they treated me as an adult normally with children what they do is they knock you out and do it so you don't feel anything so now this pain is just seared in my memory as one of the most excruciating moments of my life. So when did they start treatment with the, with the chemotherapy? That, immediately. You know, I, I woke up and I was on the drip. You know, I woke up to this, this neon orange colored um, IV drip that had uh, radi- a radioactive symbol on it. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, this stuff's going into my body. For Sean's parents, Scott and Terry Swarner, they faced caring for their 13-year-old son as chemotherapy treatments took their toll on Sean's body. We almost had it calculated to the minute when he would start throwing up. And we'd get him into bed and, and he'd uh, get all ready to get sick again. And sometimes it'd be 36 hours that he'd throw up. I realized very early in my life that Life isn't about the nicest hairstyles. It's not about the nicest clothes. It's not about the nicest shoes. I, my friends were out chasing girls, having a great time with their lives. You know, I was literally fighting for my life. I went to bed some nights not even knowing if I was going to wake up the next morning. It puts things in perspective. How long were you, were you on medication and doing the treatment? I, I would say almost a year. All right, so you're probably about, what, 14, 15 years 15 old years around this time here, yeah. you find out that there's something else wrong. I was in remission for about a year. I remember sitting in my living room watching TV, and every breath I took, I think this was on a Sunday, every breath I took, I was coupled over in pain. 
on my right side, I could feel every single breath. It felt like somebody was jabbing me in the, in the chest with a knife. And my parents saw me there. You know, some tears came out of my eyes. My checkup was Wednesday. At that checkup, in one day, so in the process of less than 24 hours, they found a tumor on an x-ray the size of a golf ball on my right lung, between my lungs and my ribs, which would explain that excruciating pain. So they found a tumor on an x-ray. They did a needle biopsy, took out another lymph node on the other side of my neck. They cracked open my ribs, removed the tumor, put in a drainage tube, and started chemotherapy in less than one day. So all this happened in, I'm guessing, 17, 18 hours. And this time around, they diagnosed me with a type of cancer that affects three out of a million people with a prognosis of 6%. The chances of me surviving both those illnesses is, is equivalent to winning the lottery four times in a row with the same numbers. It just doesn't happen. But this time around, almost 16 years old, the doctors told my parents, your son has 14 days to live. I looked at my mom and I said, if I, if I don't make it, I've had a good life. You know, and, and for a 16-year-old to tell you that, I mean, that's, that's got to be tough. You never say die. You always say hope. He was educated. He knew where he'd come from. He knew it. He thought he knew what he had ahead of him. But the second type was much worse and dropped out of high school for a year. Stomach comatose for a lot of the, the treatment. What happened during the treatment for your Askin sarcoma? I went through three months of intense chemotherapy and then one month of radiation therapy and then 10 more months of chemotherapy. And with that radiation therapy, it was such a bombardment of gamma radiation that my right lung doesn't even work. There's no oxygen transfer. There's so much scar tissue. Nothing works. It, it fills up, but nothing happens. You know, and also when I was when I was doing that, like I said, three months of intense chemo, month of radiation, and then ten more months of chemo. Every time I was in the hospital, the doctors put me in a medically induced coma. I don't even remember being sixteen years old. Not only did Sean Swarner recover, he thrived. He joined the swim team, graduated college, and then took an unexpected and extraordinary road. One few people could imagine, and even fewer have traveled. More SC featured in a moment, but first, we want to hear from you. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been listening for quite some time, we want to know how we're doing. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. If you like what you hear, make sure you're subscribed so we're easy to find next time. And if you subscribe in the ESPN app, we can send you an alert whenever we have a new podcast. And you can always tweet us your thoughts at hashtag SCFeatured. After graduation from high school in 1993, Sean went to Westminster College where he earned a degree in psychology and then was accepted to the University of North Florida as a graduate student. As Sean embarked on his graduate degree journey in psychology, where he planned to help cancer patients, he realized something bigger had to happen first. I couldn't help anybody until I helped myself. I had issues. This whole time after going through cancer, I didn't deal with what I went through. I didn't look at myself in the mirror and say, who are you? Who is Sean Swarner? So this whole time I was dragging this bag of issues with me through, through high school, through college, and then through grad school. So I took a, a break from studying and I looked at myself. And I was like, all right, well, where, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? I can't help anybody else because I haven't even helped myself. So I decided then to do something that nobody's ever done before, and that's surviving cancer and, and 
reaching uh, basically the top of the world to use it as a platform to stream hope. Yeah, because that's normal to say, like, hey, I've never been a mountaineer before, and I'm just going to go scale Everest. From Florida, right? From Florida, yeah. <laughs> the you mountainous know, state of at Florida. Sea, at sea level <laughs> to 29,000 feet. It's a logical Very logical. Leap. You know, I just knew that uh, I, was, I was going through what I went through with my cancers, and the people who were in the hospital room with me would pass away. You know, and I was still trying to move forward and, and enjoy every day. And I decided, okay, well, no cancer survivor had ever climbed Mount Everest. Why not me? Why not for the right reasons? Why not to u- why not use it as literally a 29,000-foot platform to scream hope? The human body can live for roughly 30 days without food. The human condition can sustain itself for about three days without water, but no human alive can live for more than 30 seconds without hope. And because once you give up hope, what do we have left? Absolutely nothing. And I wanted to literally use Mount Everest as that platform to scream hope and share with people around the world the possibilities and the potential of the human body and spirit. If you don't think something's possible, even before you begin, it's not possible. But if you believe firmly in it and you can see yourself at the end and you really believe that it's going to happen, then it's possible. I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to go on the roof and jump off and I can see myself flying. That's just that's just foolish, obviously, and it's not going to work. And no, we're not going to test it. So I think what I did was I attached an emotional response, like an emotional feeling to the end result. And then from there, worked backwards to figure out how I was going to make it happen. Despite the naysayers, the naysayers who told me, well, it's, they, they told me it was physiologically impossible to climb Everest with one lung. It is not possible. That's just like adding fuel to the fire. You know, I'm, I'm like a horse on the, on, the, on the track. I'll put the blinders on and I will find a way to get it done. Sean Swarner's biggest challenge would come from the first peak he took on, Mount Everest. Three-quarters of the way up the mountain lies Camp 3. From there, he would set out for the summit when things would get difficult. Tell me about the time when you made the summit push. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. It's actually kind of weird going back. Um, we were at Camp 3 when I suffered a little bit of cerebral edema which is altitude-induced swelling of the brain. And it was because of the lack of oxygen. And for whatever reason, my, my brain was literally swelling. And it, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because when I was at Camp 3 on the side of the Lhotse Ice Face, which is a sheet of ice at a 45-degree angle that goes on for a mile, it's, it's, it's insane. And a, a few days prior to that, I actually lost a friend who slid down that. He bounced a couple times, and I could see the blood splots on the mountain where he slid. And I'm going up past where he literally rocketed down the mountain. And my brain is now swelling. Every other expedition who was on the same schedule as us to go up for, from Camp 3 to Camp 4 to go for the summit that night, I come down with swelling of the brain, and I can't function. I sleep on oxygen that night, don't even move the next day. I lay in my tent on oxygen and just try to eat something and spend one more night on oxygen sleeping. So two nights on oxygen, one day on oxygen, Every other person on the same schedule as us left for Camp 4. When I couldn't move, they went for the summit. Weather turned bad, they turned around. So if I, my brain would not have swollen, I would have gone up with everyone else to go summit the day before. So it turned out, to, like I said, to be a blessing in disguise, and it's almost like I have the world's worst good luck. You know, everything bad happens, but it's for a good reason. I'm going to call a timeout here at this point. <laughs> for, so let's, let's hold on a second. So at this point, you're at Camp 3. All right, you're on a 45-degree angle sheet of ice that goes for about a mile. You right. just saw someone you knew die. Your brain is swelling. 
and yet you still say, yeah, sure, let's 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 go do Everest. At what point do you have to say, like, you know what, this isn't worth it? You know, I'm, most I'm, most I'm, people are saying <laughs> this is like, my life isn't worth this. I've already beaten cancer twice. You know, I've done that. Why did you continue? Yeah, now I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, man, he's right. I'm glad he wasn't at base camp when advising me when I was going up the mountain. I get wouldn't down, have Sean, <laughs> get down. Come down. Before I left the mountain, my, my parents told me, we didn't get you through two cancers to go kill yourself on a hunk of rock and ice. <laughs> so I, I think I'm, I'm one of the, the world's uh, safest climbers, and I take calculated risks. So I, I, no matter what happened at Camp 3, I couldn't go up or down, you know, because of my brain. And the next day after that, I woke up, I felt fine. So I figured, okay, let's continue forward. Let's push on forward. If something was in my gut telling me, don't go, turn around, I would have gone, I would have turned around. I would have gone back down. But everything in my soul, every fiber in my being was telling me to keep going forward. And the whole time I was climbing, I had a flag that had names of people touched by cancer on it in my chest pocket, close to my heart, as a constant reminder of my goals. So I kept pushing myself forward because that's why I was on the mountain. It wasn't for selfish reasons. It wasn't for me to get up there and do this. It was for every single person touched by cancer in the entire world who's ever been touched or been affected by the disease. And those were a constant reminder of why I was doing what I was doing, and that's what pushed me forward. Tell me about that moment when you get on top of the summit. I remember being on this knife ridge and looking out to my right side and the sun was coming up it was the most incredibly perfect blue purple red pink yellow orange it was a sea of clouds and mountain peaks as islands and i remember looking a little bit closer and as the sun was coming up when you're that high the horizon's not flat i remember looking out and seeing that i could actually see the curvature of the earth and I was thinking to myself, it can't get any better than this until I looked over to my left side and straight out at eye level without looking down, without looking up, anything, just straight out because there was nothing there. It was still dark on that side. There were stars at eye level. So stars at eye level over on my left side, the most amazing sunrise on my right side over here, that's when it hit me. And that's when I started tearing up, thinking I was going to make it. You know, I was going to step into the history books. But when I got to the top, I collapsed to my knees, pulled out this flag, wrapped it around the summit, and just sat down and, and looked out, essentially, over the world, knowing that I was on top, literally, on top and on the highest point on the continent. Who did you talk to? My brother. What did you say? Well, I, I called him on the radio, and I told him, um, you, can, you can let the world know that Seth Swarner's brother made it to the top of the world. He gets on the satellite phone, calls mom and dad, and I think um, we'll say it's like 1 or 2 in the morning, really early in the morning over here on the East Coast. And he calls them. Mom and dad are sitting right by the phone. They pick it up, and he says, at this moment in time, you have a son who's standing on top of the world. It's pretty cool. (laughs) Oh, for sure. When you got to the top of Everest, what did you do and why? When I first got up there, it was this emotionally laden ceremony essentially where I pulled out a flag from my chest pocket that had names of people touched by cancer which was my reason for being up there I wrapped it around the top of the world and now names are literally hopefully still to this day are wrapping around the world in hope you know it it was this symbol of people touched by cancer anywhere in the world that you can do anything you put your mind to. 
that they can climb their own personal Everest. Exactly. Everybody has issues. Everybody has challenges. You just have to look at things slightly differently. You know, there are opportunities in every situation. In 2002, I'm going to go up and go climb Mount Everest, become the first cancer survivor to summit, and you do it. Then you do the seven summits of Kilimanjaro, Elbrus, Aconcagua, Kosciuszko, Vincent Massif, and now Denali. What's next? After that, I wanted to do uh, what's called the Explorer's Grand Slam. It's, it's the seven summits and the North and South Poles, and I wanted to ski to the South Pole and ski to the North Pole. So, again, more difficult expeditions here. Tell me about the, the South Pole trip. South, you know, the South Pole was interesting, and it's logistically it's very difficult to get to. You know, you, you can't hop, hop on Travelocity and book a flight to the South Pole. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> so we flew in this Russian, huge Russian plane, landed on a blue ice runway that seemed like it took forever to slow down because you can't slam on the brakes because you'll slide and slip off and die. We took a plane then from that camp that was fitted with skis and landed just just north of 89th parallel. And then from that day, we moved, I think it was seven days straight south. And every day we just woke up and it wasn't, I mean, it's really not that exciting because you wake up every morning, joke around, all right, well, where do you guys want to go today? South. You know, there's one direction and that's it. So we woke up every morning and just headed south. Um, temperatures, which were really, really weird. It was probably minus 50. So tongue in cheek, I say it's not, it wasn't too cold, but in the tent, because the sun was constantly out, it never sits, sets. It goes just in a big halo around the sky. But in the tent, because of the radiation from the sun and the ozone hole down there, on one side of the tent, it was literally, I kid you not, 80, 88 degrees, 85 to 88 degrees in the tent. And six feet away, it was zero. So on whatever side the tent, the, whatever side of the tent the sun was on, it was 80-something degrees. And six feet away, it was zero degrees like a human sundial at that point yeah it was unbelievable that's one thing i didn't even expect you get in the tent and you start sweating so you reach the south pole and then you still got one more leg to do here which is the north pole which you just completed in april and the north pole is a an expedition unlike the other ones whereas in antarctica you at least have a, a continent here this is basically a floating ice shelf that you're trying to to get to right and and most people don't understand that because the well, the, the the northern polar ice cap is essentially like the world's cup of water, and those are the ice cubes kind of floating up top. We're literally skiing across the Arctic Ocean, and the ice is anywhere from an inch thick to 12 feet thick. And because the currents underneath are moving everything around, oftentimes the ice breaks open, and there are these huge open leads. And an open lead is when you can literally see the water. I, mean, I remember being up there. We got dropped off in the helicopter. And within 30 minutes, I saw my first open lead, and it was probably as wide as a football field, and it went on for miles. And I looked into the open lead, this huge open crevasse, essentially, where we were, we were literally maybe two inches off of the Arctic Ocean. And I looked down, and it looked like oil. It was pitch black because it was so cold and so deep. So this has been 15 years in the making, and, and no Kansas Fever has ever done the, the Adventure Grand Slam before. It's something that needs to be done proving that you can go to literally the ends of the earth to give people hope. 
What's next for Sean Swarner? I mean, is it? Are, are we are we talking to Elon Musk? Are we gonna get on SpaceX? I mean, what are we gonna do here? Cancer survivor? Hey, you know, Elon, let's let's talk, babe. You yeah. know, you know, I I would love to reach to, reach out to him and and say, hey, Elon Musk, man, you need some good press, brother. I want to be the first cancer survivor in space. You know, look at what I've done. The next new horizon, the next frontier is no gravity. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Either that or Mars. I heard they just started. That's a one-way trip. Yeah. I, I, I plan on returning. But, but to be the first cancer survivor to colonize Mars. That can be some So you're not thinking big enough. <laughs> you know? Thank you for joining us. Thanks for letting us tell your story. It's an honor to be here, and I'm really grateful that we're friends as well. So thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for letting me share my story, everybody, and uh, hopefully it inspires some people to get out there and, and do amazing things. A big thank you to Denny Wolf and Sean Swarner for sharing their friendship and their story with us. That's going to do it for this episode of SC Featured. It was produced by John Fish. Until next time, I'm your host, Jen Latta. Thanks for listening.